0: This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio
1: show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Minnie Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week we feature a pre-recorded conversation with spiritual teacher J.J. J. Gold, author of Just in Time, Autobiographical Stories from an American Spiritual Master, Another Heart in His Hand, A Spiritual Anomaly, and Highway of Diamonds. In his younger years, J.J. J. Gold studied at a 500-year-old experimental Nakshbandi Sufi school in northeastern Afghanistan. He believed that the methods he learned in this school needed to be modified for people in affluent Western cultures. He took on this challenge, developing tools, dynamics, and explorations of consciousness to help lead Westerners towards intimacy with the ultimate reality in order to become true servants. J.J. Gold has been assisting people in their search for inner meaning for 35 years. He is currently living in the Sierra foothills of Northern California, where he works with several dozen seekers of truth. Over the years, he has deliberately resisted the trend to become a traveling guru with thousands of followers around the world in favor of preserving an element that he considers precious, that of maintaining opportunities for developing an actual teacher-student relationship. He is available to anyone who seeks his guidance. Justin Gold, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist.
2: Pleasure to be here. Thank you.
1: In the the last conversation we had, which is about a year and a half ago, um, we focused in part on your book, Just in Time. And there was some interesting material, particularly at the uh, end of the book, that I wanted to get into that speaks a little bit more to some of the work you've been doing with your community and people in general, and that's that's really around the question of obstacles to spiritual work that you find really impact people who are raised in an affluent Western culture, because it seems like you've done a lot of research on that question, and I'm interested in your views on what are some of the Key challenges that people in the modern West face when really trying to engage in traditions that originated in part with practices and techniques in a very different cultural context.
2: Right. Yes, I I understand the the predicament, and I understand the question. Uh, And yes, I have put energy into uh, exploring this particular area. You know what I'm thinking of as you're asking me the question is uh, the saying, uh, variety is the spice of life. I think that's how it goes, isn't it? Variety is the yes. spice of life? Yes. yes. Yeah. What I'm thinking is that uh, uh, what the saying has become in our culture, whether it's for spiritual pursuits or other, mm-hmm. is uh, variety is life, and not necessarily the spice of life. So what I'm picturing is going into a restaurant and getting a plate with a little pile of oregano and a little pile of uh thyme and a little pile of uh of saffron and and having that be the meal. But it's not the meal. The essence is that uh, variety may be the spice of life, but uh uh life is something beneath the uh the spices. It's spices uh accentuate life, but we've missed the essence of of uh what's beneath and uh... pretty much satisfied with the variety and spirituality has certainly followed suit and the variety is what's happening now so anything really essential and basic is not does not have enough uh... color to it to attract people and the idea of uh, repetition or uh... uh... Even the traditional practices are lost because uh, they're not spicy enough.
3: Yeah, I'm thinking that um, patience is something that people, as as you're saying that, I'm thinking that patience is one of the things that I think people traditionally would understand, not even as uh, as a separate thing, but as a necessary aspect of... um, cultivating wisdom and nowadays uh, patience is uh, I think a virtue largely neglected shall we say
2: Yeah, I agree. I agree. There's a there's a basic concept uh, that I find myself uh, uh, in opposition to as long as I can remember that uh, There always is a goal and if there's always a goal There's not always a process So if there's always a product, there's not always a process. So, uh, if the, if the goal becomes bigger than the process, then we don't really enjoy the process. And that, that is not only in, uh, in, uh, things that you could describe as long-term gains, but even in, in our movements, in our movements from, from one place to another, there rarely is any value for the time in between and even for our reaching for the doorknob uh... our our valuation for that for, for the life that exists in that movement to the doorknob multiplied times a million times is uh... is lost because the idea is get to the doorknob or get to the car or get to the uh... vacation spot or get to the office or get to the refrigerator and uh, so we lose a lot of moments in that way and we lose our patience as well because we're always on the way to the, to the product
3: that makes sense um and i'm thinking also of the contrast with um you know when i when i first met my teacher it uh, it was impressed upon me how important a, a a higher goal can be as opposed to the sorts of um, you know, mundane goals that you that you're talking about. So um, I'm wondering if 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 that makes if that distinction makes sense to you, and how how you would flesh that out more.
2: I think the distinction, uh, the uh, the difference, makes sense certainly. But uh, if we learn in ordinary life uh, certain practices and certain valuations, how are we to change our value system when we enter? Uh, what might be called the going home phase of life or the spiritual phase of life. I think that uh, uh, theoretically uh, it might be possible, but in actuality I think the processes that we learn in ordinary life are the processes and the valuations that we learn in ordinary life are the, the valuations that we carry over into our spiritual pursuits.
1: So do you think that when one gets engaged in a spiritual practice in the west that there has to be a significant phase for unlearning and a willingness to actually engage in that unlearning
2: i that's uh, i totally agree
1: it's i mean it's interesting you you've you've written about how the pace of life in the modern world is <clears throat> gets in our way that you know we have this expectation for instant results and Frankly, in the what we see in a lot of the uh, popularization of spiritual practices is a kind of commodification. So there's the joke now of Mick Mindfulness, where mindfulness has kind of been turned into a product in its own right, and that seems like a very different kind of uh, thing than what you speak to. Because I, I I hear you speaking to, and in your in your writing that. There's a kind of a baking-in process that where people have to settle into a very different way of being in order for them to even begin to consider reconnection with something more fundamental in themselves.
2: Yeah, I think that's where patience is really required and is, is, is really available because the idea of uh of swimming uh, long distance would obviously uh be uh, uh preceded by training of some kind because a person would recognize that was beyond their reach and uh we could come up with so many examples of of that particular preparation but the idea that uh because meditation is offered that means that we're uh ready for it but uh, as you say, uh, in my writings and in my uh, philosophy and my discoveries, that is just not the case. There is a preparation because meditation is a, is a much finer practice than we imagine it to be. It's not just calming. Uh, it's not just uh, placating. It's not just slowing down. It's the uh, the uh, possibility of connecting with something really essential in in human life and in order to reach for that some preliminary work to get our vibrations if you might say a little finer is uh, is reasonably required and is uh but uh, you know it's if we're if we think that we're ready for anything just because it's advertised then we probably will go for it <laughs>
3: Yeah, no doubt. Um because we think we can just grab it and take it. Um I, I really appreciate this this point you're making and um uh I'm I'm imagining that 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 um it's hard to find takers, relatively speaking, who that is, people who are who are willing to um configure their capacities in the way that you're describing. Uh, set, such that they need training to even do um, the kind of meditation that you're talking about. Is that is that more or less the case, or d- are um, are uh, the folks you work with um, at at one end of a bell curve?
2: Well, I ha- I have a relatively long range view, and maybe in comparison to a lot of uh, get it nows. I, I have a very long-range view. I see myself more... uh Well, I'm, uh, maybe you remember, maybe about in the middle of the last century, there was a there were a couple of doctors, one in South Africa. Uh, I think his name was... Yeah, Christian Barnard in South Africa and a doctor in Houston. I don't remember his name right now. Was
3: that DeBakey? And
2: they, yes, DeBakey. That was it. Yes. Uh, and they pioneered in uh, heart transplant. And... Uh, they were the only two people on earth that were basically uh, uh, exploring a heart transplant, but they had a few uh, proteges with them, and their their um, obviously the number of heart transplants they could do were were limited uh, as individuals. But they were training their uh, their proteges and. Possibly, in a hundred years or fifty years or in a lot of years, there would be hundreds or maybe even thousands of physicians around the world that could do that process. So I see much more of this time is very difficult, very difficult to do anything but train proteges It's just very early in the process, and there's so much resistance from the culture uh that uh, not deliberate and not personal but uh the way things are mm-hmm. uh, very, very difficult, so I see myself more uh, training proteges than I do uh, spreading the word to to hundreds or thousands
3: that make, that makes sense to me and i'm and i 'm wondering about um, uh, how you can figure that you, you just said you know it's the, there are these obstacles i't that 's not the word you use, but there are impediments in the culture cultural context that People grow up in and experience as adults that that um, require this training that you're talking about, and I'm wondering if if, that's, uh, if uh, training people in recognizing how those operate in themselves is part of what you're um, what you need to do. Uh,
2: that's my view. I think that uh, the level the level of uh, of acceptance of mediocrity. And what's called excellence, as opposed to uh, mediocrity, is so distorted that uh, the idea of of the spiritual pursuit is lost in the acceptance of what uh, uh, Don Juan called uh, uh, an all-too... Um, i 'm not all too unpleasant Sunday afternoon. I think we accept uh, a life uh, that we call peace, the absence of war and and that we accept uh, having our bills paid as a major conquest and uh, really getting by as as uh, as an accomplishment and it 's very difficult to to generate the the electricity and the hunger and the the desire and the intention for a spiritual pursuit, uh, as natural as it is, it's buried, and it takes something to achieve. And uh, we see we see excellence, but what it takes to really uh, uh, view that excellence is a crisis such as is happening now with the fires. You know, we see people rise to incredible. Uh, of levels of courage and, and generosity and, and compassion, but it's unusual and it really takes more. As uh, as uh, one of my friends uh, wrote a song and put it on YouTube, uh, it shouldn't take a hurricane.
3: <laughs> yeah, I, that, that makes sense to me. So, so I guess one of the things that's coming into my head, as you say that, is um, is that the. The enemy is, is, enemy may be the, too strong a word, but the obstacle is our addiction to comfort. Um, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but if it does, please comment.
2: Well, I, th- I think uh, uh, comfort is nice. Uh, but addiction is not nice. Addiction is a dependence that requires and carries a lot of weight with it, no matter what that addiction is. We all know the weight that addiction to to hard drugs is, and addiction to uh, to work is. It causes stress and strain. But all all addictions, all dependency and lack of freedom to choose, is uh, uh, promises relief at the end but really the prices the price is very high and the uh and the strain and the difficulty and the, the constant maintenance of uh, of that dependency it uh, costs it costs our 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 natural human life in a lot of cases so um, i i do see that uh that our naturalness is is definitely at risk
3: and um and um just on the other on the flip side, it seems to me that, in addition to an addiction to comfort um there's also a, a uh, ever more pervasive presence of a kind of unproductive low level stress or stressors um that exact more from people than they than they may realize psychically, et cetera.
2: yeah, I agree. Uh, when he used the word enemy, I have very few enemies, but I want to tell you about one. It's called massage.
3: Okay, tell me more. (laughs) Okay.
2: (laughs) Massage is
3: is a practice
2: which, in our part of the world, is is, uh, very popular and very prevalent. And if a person doesn't find another job, they can always do that. And it's uh, especially because it's wanted and it's desired and it's sought out. But what it does is it creates a certain level of okayness is really a pacification, and I think that pacification is is unfortunate and, uh, and self destructive because the pain behind it is more <clears throat> product, can be more productive than the desire to placate or, or to uh, absolve that pain so the idea of temporary temporary uh, relaxation in my opinion is contrary. To what we really need, we really need to get a face full of the distorted, uh, uh, uh progression of, uh, the way life has gone and the way our lives have gone. And in order to get that, uh, that clear picture, see ourselves as we are, as really, uh, people who are products of feeling bad and doing something to get relief from that feeling bad, and feeling bad again, and then getting relief from that feeling bad, and doing it so often for so many years that we call that relief feeling good. But it really is not feeling good. So uh, the activities that we perform to uh, to come up from those cycles that bring us down, uh, although understandable, in my opinion, are not productive. They allow life to go on as it is, but they don't facilitate change or encourage it. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I I actually think that's really an interesting point, because the idea of the seeking of relief and the ways in which our society is structured to offer various forms of relief is in itself kind of, uh, as you say, reifies the ongoing uh maintenance of the factors that give rise to the stressors and the distortions by which we actually require the relief. And the other thing is, is that it, it to me it, it tends to then turn any sort of possibility of doing something about it into uh kind of the equivalent of taking an aspirin. And and what I mean by that is like I see people's relationship to spiritual practice like if they come to a study group that we're holding or something like that there's this tendency to feel like they come when they feel like it or someone'll be there and be really touched by the energy of a conversation and a possibility and they'll sw- swear up and down I'm going to be right back you know I'm going to be back here next week and then they never you never see them again because they didn't feel like it later because it's like they're on to the next form of relief and what they're looking for is that kind of cessation of pain, but they, don't, they want a cessation of pain without actually looking at the pain.
2: Yeah, when people come to my meetings, they come back immediately. They never, that never happens to me. Well, that and if you believe that,
1: <laughs> if
2: you believe that, you've taken too many aspirins. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I need some relief.
2: <laughs> I, so, I certainly have I certainly have seen that, and I've seen that, and it really has to be understood uh, in not only a judgmental way, which it can be, but in a compassionate way that there are so many there are so many opportunities to to uh, uh self calm let's call it yeah. that the uh, the competition for real change is is uh, it's very challenging, and so <laughs> I leave my door open for anybody who wants to come in and and people do, and people sometimes taste it and are very inspired in the moment, but then they uh, come into conflict with the rest of their life and all the other promises—not only the the obligations, but all the promises that are available to them, uh, which are not hard to find, and uh, and <clears throat> frequently don't come back, as you say.
1: So we have a um, a phrase we use in our study groups, uh, uh, which is "follow your dread," as opposed to uh, Joseph Campbell's "follow your bliss," and. Some people get attracted to that, although I w- I'll say it's not a it's not a big winner for most people. But it does act as a useful filter because it, it seems, and I get this from some of the material I was reading uh, from your writings, that you know uh, following your dread is a necessary step in order to be present to the factors, the distorted factors that give rise to our our unease or our disease, and. I like how you also make a, a a a very clear distinction between being present to is not the same as being identified with, and there's a i I'm interested in how you if you could elaborate on that distinction because I think that's a really uh, powerful message that you have,
2: yeah right well, you know so much so much of our interest, although we are uh, there are none. None of us more than one eight billionth of the human materiality on this earth, and uh, even though we're not more than that, we see ourselves as more than that, and we see ourselves in in uh, in ways that are distorted. Uh, so our self-importance grows and grows and grows and grows. So our problems, plans, and relationships become huge and in comparison to anything and even if there's a, a tragedy as there is now with the fires uh... it's very difficult to extricate ourselves from the self-importance of our moments to even give thought to those things so uh, although people do it still is challenging so i see this uh... i see that there are some uh... uh... assets needed to be able to to contend with the self-importance one is definitely humor. If a person can see the funny edge of their distorted view of how, uh, no matter what's happening on Earth, the paper cut that you got yesterday <clears throat> calls out to be the most important thing. And there's humor in that. And if a person can see the humor in that and really start from seeing small things, the difference between... Uh, uh, seeing things as they are and it being challenging and painful to seeing things as they are and having perspective can be uh it can be enjoyable and i say this really mostly because that's the way the process was for me it was I've absolutely seeing my dread and seeing my defects and seeing my obstacles i mean there can be no other way but uh i liked it i liked it because uh i had i had the influence of people that were more explorers than uh explainers people trying to figure out what's going on and that that science is a lot more impersonal than the science of i want to get better i want to get better i want to get better i want to get happy or free or whatever it is and so that that perspective explore, exploring uh, really became infectious with me, and the studying of my defects became more detached uh, and it became more scientific, although not uh, only intellectual, but scientific. And I think there's something from humor it, to be learned from humor and science. That uh, can really allow us to delve deeper into seeing our obstacles than than the the pain of taking it personally
3: well that, that makes uh, a lot of sense uh, uh, my, my, our own teacher uh, used to say that the mantra for our school was sense humor sense humor and um, and uh, the the thing that um, people would could tune into was his amusement um, at foibles, you know, his fo- his own foibles, other people's foibles, and and I think that sh- there's something about the shared nature of humor, um, which is um, a powerful tool.
2: Yeah, that's one of the reasons I agree that's one of the reasons why group work seems to be so much more viable than than uh, trying to hack it on your own because if you get if you get to laugh and other people get to laugh and there's some cooperative uh agreement that we're not going to get heavy about this then uh, uh, it it makes for for really an enjoyable path and a magnetic path rather than uh, a torturous path because really in this in these times torture is very difficult to sell.
3: <laughs> as opposed to prior times. <laughs> well, I like I, I like that. Actually, I think you could make the argument that t- that that torture is easy to sell in in a certain kind of sense because people seem to be addicted to it, um, although not configuring it to themselves that as uh, with that um, term, of course. But um, but still, it's this. Uh, um, there 's all this uh, misunderstanding of of where you 're going Stuart mentioned Mick mindfulness before, and just recently, in one of our conversations with a Buddhist practitioner, um, it was being pointed out that um, mindfulness divorced from spiritual from 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 an underlying spiritual practice is something that has been touted now for decades Com- you know coming out of a Buddhist context mindfulness has been uh, uh separately configured uh, and and now that's starting to ha- uh, happen as well with compassion um in you know coming out of the uh the buddhist context i'm won- and i'm wondering if if that's um if that's something that you uh as you reflect on it may have observed yourself that um there's a kind of detachment of the idea of compassion from the spiritual practice which makes it practical um, as opposed to um, just this 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 easy thing, oh, I can just go to this workshop and then i 'll be able to um, act compassionately
2: right, yes, yeah, I think I understand wh- what what you 're saying. Uh, I find that there are qualities, there are human qualities that are that are definitely shared qualities. And they're essential qualities and they can be uncovered. And compassion is one of those qualities. I think to strive for compassion theoretically is an honorable striving. But actually to think that you're going to do something to get it, I think that it's already there. And the uncovering process is, <clears throat> is what the challenge, where the challenge lies. So my view is that, uh, if we really understood that our pain for the people who are losing their lives and losing their loved ones in in paradise california our pain comes from not from <clears throat> some quality that we have but from our natural connection to those people that we are not so separate and that we when we see something when we see something when we see someone in pain or someone having trouble uh, or someone suffering Unless we cover that feeling, there's a natural feeling of that we ourselves are going through that. And uh, I think that uh, that understanding has been somewhat lost, that the the qualities that some of us seek, uh, who want something more than the ordinary, that those qualities are not in front of us. Those qualities are uh, hidden Within and beneath us, and, uh, I see that for, I see that for patience, I see that com- for compassion, uh, I see that for wisdom and understanding that there's, uh, that <clears throat> I am not a particularly uh... remarkable person in any way but uh... and the people around me coincidentally are not particularly remarkable people really in the middle of the road people but uh... for some reason the process that uh... that i uh... That took took over for me, allowed some of those obstacles to evaporate and for, to dissipate, and what was beneath them were were qualities that I never imagined were going to be there, and certainly even ones that I wasn't looking for. So I think in the in the uh, uh, something like that. What, what's your take on that idea?
1: Well, I I, I certainly. Share that view in the, in that the qualities, you know, I guess sometimes they're referred to as being qualities are available and when we touch them, we, it's a very powerful experience. I mean, it's a very kind of a unifying experience and, and it's as though one's ordinary concerns or one's personal concerns disappear the The challenge that I see both you know in my own work and I see this uh with uh uh people struggling on a spiritual path or people just in ordinary life, especially people in ordinary life who don't even configure the possibility of systematically finding access to that kind of uh unifying power is that it's it's as though our our three centers our mental center, our emotional center, and our uh moving and instinctive center are kind of like um, the, uh, the dials on a, a slot machine, and every moment, basically, you're pulling the, uh, one arm bandit, and a, uh, configuration comes up. Once in a while, it's, it's, uh, all cherries, and things seem really great. Most of the time, it's, uh, just some sort of random configuration, and we wonder how we get there. So, the challenge or the opportunity, you know, that I find compelling about, uh, uh, spiritual practice is the possibility of understanding the conditions that i create for myself that obscure that kind of uh openness and being able to take steps or to uh uh do something take challenges essentially to take risks that uh uh Move away from those things that I create for myself that obscure possibility.
2: Mm-hmm. What what is uh, what is your view of the the uh, idea that we have to be good and we have to put forth that we're good and that we're kind and that we're uh, uh, caring or that we're in any way. Uh, uh, well thinking and feeling people, and uh, what what is your view of that? How strong that is, and that uh, does that keep us from seeing the uh, the self destructive tendencies that we have?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think you 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 said it right there. That I think that the you know the idea that we're supposed to uh, act nice, uh, the idea that we're supposed to be good. Uh, and that our society and our, you know, our parents, you know, tell us from the very early, you know, uh, earliest moments to be good in certain ways or to be nice in certain ways rather than being authentic. Uh, I think create this uh, kind of a neurotic state where we both doubt ourselves, are in resistance to ourselves and are appalled at ourselves. And as a result of that, we tend to look away from ourselves and i don't think that's very productive i mean i you know for what i what was hardest for me uh in my work with my teacher was just being willing to look at myself even in the simplest things i mean uh when i came to our uh, community uh i remember once just being asked a a question at the, you know at the table like uh, something like what what my favorite food was and i was paralyzed i couldn't an- I couldn't answer a simple question like that because i was so afraid of being wrong in some way and so yeah i think i think the 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 challenge is that we have to do something that is uh counterintuitive to the way that we're raised in this uh culture which we're raised to act in particular ways and socially acceptable ways and we have to look at that within us, which actually is in rebellion to that, and be present to it, not not shirk. Sure. I mean, that, that's how I see it. How, how does that land with you? Well,
2: easier said than done, but definitely, <laughs> yeah. definitely part of the uh, the the necessity for a support system in which uh, it's okay to manifest uh, a part of uh, a part of. Uh, a person that is not uh, good and kind, not <clears throat> not in, a, in an angry identified way because most of those most of those manifestations are relatively subtle and small, and then annoyance is a very big part of life. Uh, fury is a very small part of life, so I say to people I say to people that uh, if you get one point for each Uh, revelation then it's much better to uh, reveal that you're annoyed than you're furious because you can only get one point a year for your fury but you can get thousands of points for your uh (laughs) for your uh, uh, annoyance and uh and really also to understand the basic principle which is very hard to convey and very hard to learn but once it's learned it's tremendously freeing is that everything that a person does uh, may be triggered from the outside but there has to be something inside that person that reacts to that uh, to that stimulus so the minute you feel difficulty of any kind whatsoever you can erase whatever triggered that stimulus and go right to yourself to see what the, uh, the discord is in you and if a person can get to that point or even approach that point, it makes, uh, it makes the, the work that we do so much easier because blame, which is so much a part of life, starts to uh, dissipate. And even if blame were, were in evidence half the time, that would free up so much so much understanding and so much possible exploration of what is within a person—that's discord—rather than what's causing that discord from outside.
3: Well, that makes a lot of sense to me, and um, I'm I'm remembering the book uh, *Lost Christianities*, I think, by uh, um, Needleman, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. and um, and he makes the point um, in that book that. You know, our culture has, literally at this point for, you know, thousands of years, has um, uh, advocated for loving your neighbor as yourself. But um, the, the um, uh, injunction to do that offers no practical way actually to, to um, embody that, that, that kind of reality. So um so I like what you just said because because to me this is this is a way congruent with the great spiritual traditions and and um paths that I'm familiar with because it actually offers something that you can do um instead of just trying to you know make it by faking it or something like that. Not that that can't, that, not that that can't principle can't be useful at times, but if it's, if it's applied unconsciously with the assumption that, oh, I can just, ap- if I just appear to be nice, then I'm, then I'm actually achieving being nice or kind or loving or whatever. Um, that it's a different thing.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, about the example, and maybe I can bring it back a little bit to my my uh, comparison of uh, maybe pure science and applied science that uh, these are times that uh, pure science meaning exploration and and arts uh, um, <clears throat> art forms are very hard to get sponsoring and very hard to get as much uh, attention as as remedy sciences and remedy art hmm. and uh i think there's there's a big loss there because the the uh, realizations that you're talking about and i'm talking about really can only come from an exploratory process the 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 uh the idea of uh of <clears throat> of striving for change and striving for uh action is uh is uh, infinitely inferior uh for real change than the the process of exploring what say if we take even uh bad feelings and negative emotions the exploration of the nature of negative emotions and uh the exploration of the nature of identification the exploration of the nature of the uh of the of the way people are and uh, are people one thing or are there many parts to a person uh rather than to do those things to either feel better or change yourself to to be a scientist and study those situations and those those uh anomalies so i i found that this last one that uh, that we were talking about of uh uh that's called blame, where, where we don't see our own responsibility for the difficulties we have, even difficulties in the moment, where we will actually, if someone cuts us off in traffic, we will actually blame that person rather than understand that they're having trouble and that's no reason that we should have trouble because they're having trouble. Uh, we could even be compassionate about their trouble because it's not, negative emotions are not contagious. They are absolutely and irrefutably not contagious. And that can only be discovered through exploration. It can't be discovered through trying to feel better. So I'm a big fan of what I call exploring rather than explaining. And uh, if I'm not t- talking too long about this subject, I find that uh, language, uh, which I'm uh, a big fan of, obviously I write, but I'm probably more a big fan of spoken language. Uh, what I've found that, uh, the distortion of language, uh, has, <clears throat> has to be contended with if we're going to be explorers because language has been used to explain, to deny, to really eliminate, uh, <clears throat> to eliminate, uh, anomalies rather than to allow anomalies to come forth rather than language being used for explanation for exploration so uh, uh it's a big part of my thrust to to have people understand the difference between the two and to not use language to close doors but more to open them
1: so that, that requires a, a fluidity with language or a <clears throat> a maybe a non-literalness, uh, if I understand you correctly. Because I, I, I mean, I find this, one of the virtues that we have of doing this radio show and talking to people in a lot of different tra- traditions is that we have to uh, translate in a way and hear hear what someone's saying at a different level than just the kind of the literal meaning of the words in order to, allow communication, and then it, then it becomes a fun exploration because in this moment, a particular word may mean something different than the way I might have used it before. But if I lock on to one definition, then I'm kind of stuck.
2: Yeah, I think that's really, that's really what art is about, whether it's in language or it's in poetry or it's in movies or it's in music, is that uh, it's not really important... To, uh, to, uh, define exactly what did he mean? What did she mean? What did he mean? What did she mean? But what do you make of it? Uh, where does it take you? Whether, you know, in songs, especially songs that are poetic and really in music itself and, uh, certainly in words and even in mathematics that the, the, uh, the possibility of allowing something to take you somewhere inside yourself where your intuition is where your wisdom is where your freedom for exploration is and see where you go because you can't go on the other person's journey really but you can allow the other person to help you to go on your own
3: that's that's nicely put and i'm i'm thinking back to the word remedy that you used just a, a few minutes ago uh, and and Thinking about the connection with the sort of psychology, what I've sometimes seen described as the psychologicalization, that's a hard word to get out apparently, uh, the psychologicalization of so much of um, so many of the traditional spiritual paths as they're interpreted um, through the Western mind and experience. And remedy seems to you know when when we think of um when we think of our efforts um to um, to reduce the pain in, in our lives we we tend to collapse our attention onto this thing that we think of as a remedy um and so what you just said a moment ago um is important because it it points to the uh, continuing to 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 the action of continuing to look for a broader context in which to understand my experience and how it's arising mechanically or not.
2: Yeah, I don't know. Do you, either of you guys play music? I,
1: I play. Uh, yeah, I, I play uh, a Japanese uh, bamboo flute, at the shakuhachi
2: uh-huh uh-huh i've i found i've played i've been playing music since i was a child and i find that uh there's uh in, in my high school orchestra i was uh a, a second violinist that was the first second violinist so my job was never to play the melody so whatever the tune sounds like, whether it was uh, Vivaldi or whether it was a popular tune, my job was never to, uh, you could say, how does that song go? And if I would play my part, you would have no idea how the song went, because it was a a counterpoint to the song. So, I I learned to value counterpoint in that way. And I find that that's that that holds true not only in music, uh, but it still holds true. Uh, it holds uh, true in music for me because when I play with other people, I try to find what I can play that will support that music and not necessarily uh, 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 mimic that music or, or copy that music. And I think the same. It's there's the same in in uh, literature and poetry and and art and even in nature. And I. I uh, I'm enamored of the idea of, uh, of the bead game, a, a book by Herman Hess that was written some 75 or so years ago where he described this practice of, uh, of, uh, <clears throat> uh, transferring your understanding of one uh, discipline to another discipline. So in other words, uh, expressing art in mathematics or expressing music in medicine or expressing uh, your your valuation for nature in uh, in some practice that has nothing to do with nature, and I think that flexibility of thought and feeling is is really freeing because we have really become a culture of, of imitators, and even what we call creative is basically frequently, let's say, uh, imitation with a little change of color at the end uh, and really denying our ability to be creative which i think is a great loss because i think it's one of the natural qualities of human being of human beings to express some individuality uh, and i think that individuality can be freed up by creating a more flexible way of thinking and feeling and so that when we hear when we hear a lyric in a song, whether it's uh, Bob Dylan or Leonard Cohen or or John Denver or anything beautiful and poetic that we hear, we don't necessarily have to think what did he mean or where was he when he did that, or I want to read his biography to know what his experience is, but that we can that we can make the transition to explore our own possibility of uh, depth of experience, which goes very, very, very far and deeper than we ever conceive it to be.
3: It makes it makes a lot of sense, and and it it um, it tracks with my own development. You know, when I first uh, started on the spiritual path, and and my teacher, who a lot of his teaching was deriving from the fourth way, had a, had a particular. You know, Gurdjieff's take on imagination um, was quite negative, or at least um, fantasy, uh, um, and so I in m- in my Hearing that um, made the mistake for many years of thinking that i that I should not strive to enact imagination. What I've come to see in the in you know um, over quite a long period of time is that actually imagination and the and the um, creative exercise of imagination is 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 one of the great tools for spiritual. Practitioners, number one, but as you say, is is something that um, that marks uh, our 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 human manifestation. If we if we let ourselves do it, I was raised in in a context that was highly judgmental, and so it's easy for me to uh, say no to the creative impulses arising in me, and I've come to realize that. That um, that my spiritual practice is is intimately um, involved with the exercise of of a kind of imagination that I used to dismiss.
2: So, how do you balance uh, this creative spiritual imagination with uh, seeing things as they are?
3: That's a well. It's it's a it's a good question um, because. Um, um, when i 'm talking about using imagination it 's often in the in the context of um, seeing that bigger context that we were di- that we were discussing um, earlier so so the use of imagination can be em- u- imagination can be employed in order to see that the context that I've been used to narrowly focusing on is actually part of a much greater context. Does that make sense?
2: Uh, it makes sense, but it uh, doesn't really address the question about the uh, how do you put the imagination aside when it comes mm-hmm. to being an obstacle in yourself that uh, would prefer to be imagined.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I guess in, in the sense that... Um uh, I understand it and I experience it. There's, there's a quite a distinction even energetically or feeling wise between creative imagination and the kind of, uh, uh, fantasy that I think Gurdjieff was speaking of. And so in the sense that there's, it is, it is an interesting balance because for me, imagination is important to allow me to see possibilities whereas i have to be rigorously clear to see the reality of what is but the challenge is that i don't want to take what is and project that into the future as what must be because otherwise there's not a possibility for transformation so it's in a way they they kind of it's a funny way for me that they but they work to, they work together you know clear seeing and imagination are, are are like two sides of uh, the question of transformation. So I'll, I'll just add
3: one other uh, thing. I, I've I've had the privilege of seeing Stuart's uh, shakachi teacher, uh, Japanese bamboo flute teacher, um, work with uh, his students. I, I'm not a student of the shakachi myself, but but it's it's been quite remarkable to see. How, when Stewart's uh, teacher, who's one of the great players of the world of this instrument, how he um, can suggest um, a way to focus attention through the use of imagination and through attention on different parts of the body in order to create instantaneously a different a different sound from the instrument, and that's the kind of that's the kind of uh, employment of of imagination to create a bigger context that I'm that I'm pointing to here.
2: Yeah, interesting. I I, I follow.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting. I mean, it, it's a, it is a uh, it's a great question, and it's an interesting arena. Like, how do I distinguish the kind of uh, imagination of uh, you know imagining or convincing myself i'm doing something that i'm not or i'm being something that i'm not which afflicts most, most people and that that kind of imagination has a it, it 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 has a sense or a quality of avoidance uh to it to me because i'm sort of like using using imagination to push push something away whereas active imagination in the way that we're describing it like rob was describing in the context of how my shakuhachi teacher teaches is it's work i mean it's it's work to do i mean i you have to it's really a, the work of attention and, it, and it's creative and it uh um it like all qualities of work there's kind of a second force resistance but then once you get past that there's a flow and an opening that's uh quite distinct from that kind of anemic kind of uh, uh self-denial that uh you know, in an ordinary sense, passes for imagination. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with spiritual teacher J.J. J. Gold, author of Just in Time, autobiographical stories from an American spiritual master, Another Heart in His Hand, A Spiritual Anomaly, and Highway of Diamonds. J.J. Gold has been assisting people in their search for inner meaning for 35 years. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined in the following presentation by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Talia Meditation Center, and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. We now continue with the pre-recorded conversation with spiritual teacher J.J. Gold, author of Just in Time, Autobiographical Stories from an American Spiritual Master, Another Heart in His Hand, A Spiritual Anomaly, and Highway of Diamonds. J.J. Gold has been assisting people in their search for inner meaning for 35 years.
3: I don't know if you have anything that you would would want to add to that, but uh, but I welcome any comments.
2: Uh, no, I, I have no comments. I'm, I'm looking over at uh, a, a few of my uh, friends who are sitting here listening to our conversation, and... One of them, one of them was not feeling so well today, so I was looking at them to see how they, uh, how they can also hear you. And yeah. they're, they're perking up, they're feeling better, so there must be something good in what you said. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well,
3: that's a, that's, that, that, that's a good rating, or review, I mean.
2: <laughs> it may or may not be, because in these times it's, it seems like, like, uh, the, since the body is the most visible and tangible thing that we have to deal with, and it, uh, if it contains subtleties there's so, certainly not to the level of subtleties that our thoughts and our feelings uh project mm-hmm. or contain that uh, so much energy has gone into into pacifying the body you know that yeah. the uh and I wonder what you guys think about uh if that energy which is uh Which is huge and has has even taken over the exploratory part of uh, of psychedelic drugs. That that they're now they're now medicinal and really known for their medicinal or getting known for their medicinal qualities on the body, which will probably detract from their possible uh, medicinal medicinal qualities for exploration. I wonder what what you guys take on, on that whole story.
3: Oh, I'm you know, our teacher was quite clear on this point. I have done uh, a little bit of exploration on this point myself to um, attempt to confirm his his view, which is precisely that there. Uh, um, I mean, he, he used to put it in terms of there are certain subtle substances manufactured by the body that can be. Uh, released as it were in a in a very short period of time when taking these kinds of drugs and the problem is that that for most people the manu- the the, the or the manufacturing of these subtle substances is uh something that can take quite a long period of time it is possible to get better and more uh, quicker and more efficient at, at at manufacturing these substances with with pr- a proper uh, kind of spiritual practice but that um but that really um unless you're doing it with some guidance uh, it tends to short circuit um um some of the some of the more interesting possibilities for a, for a period of time a greater or, or lesser period of time and overuse can is a real danger to uh, spiritual uh, to continuing spiritual practice so does, it,
2: does that include does that include vitamins
3: i hadn't thought of it that way but i i and so the, my my response is i don 't know maybe
1: so uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll add a, 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 maybe a slightly different uh, perspective to the question, you know, the particular question that you raised. And um, uh, my own explorations in these uh, matters uh, occurred before I met my teacher. So it was uh, I was more in the mode of, you know, going to college, exploring drugs and uh, hallucinogens. And yet I had an intention or a desire, you know, it was driven by a, a desire to understand something deeper about myself and the experiences i had not the not at all not all of them were pleasant or revelatory or anything like that but they were powerful enough to uh give me a sense of possibility but i also came away with a a sense of also recognizing that to go any further in this i had there had to i had to do something different that that there wasn't a um a uh, a lo- a long-term uh path associated with this and that kind of kindled my beginnings to start to look look for to to connect with a uh you know with guides or people who had uh, done things more systematically and that that said you know to the question of like the utilization of hallucinogens for uh therapeutic purposes i'm kind of mixed on that i mean i kind of i i I mixed on that the same way I mixed on the use of mindfulness as a way to uh, allow people better focus and less stress and things like that. On the one hand, it's hard to argue that, you know, if you uh, are able to use a um, uh, psychoactive substance as part of a therapeutic process and help someone who's uh, depressed, you know, uh get some freedom from the neurotic thought patterns that give rise to the uh negative ideation that they have it's hard for me to say that that's not a bad thing just like if someone is stressed and they uh uh start to meditate and they only do it because they're trying to relieve the stress in their lives you know that i think that's an okay thing too but my concern and the ambivalence i have about that is that uh in both of those examples, there's a context of spiritual transformation that's being erased. And when that context is erased, I think the larger possibility or the larger context that we've been talking about becomes less attainable. And that then I start to think of these things as kind of commodifying uh, the possibility of transformation and making it uh, more ordinary and not as radical as I think the actual possibility is,
2: yeah i follow
3: mm-hmm. i i'm I'm curious about uh, if you have something to say about vitamins uh, that was that, that was an interesting interjection there so um please elaborate
2: well uh, uh, i think my question my question and my comment about uh the the uh the uh emphasis of of physical well being is uh, <clears throat> uh goes very much along the lines of what uh what Rob was just talking about uh, that uh, it's it's a conundrum really because people do feel better uh, dealing with uh, eating healthy foods mm-hmm. uh, eating healthy foods uh, you get to feel better uh Taking supplements, you get to feel better. I understand that, but the, the, uh, the idea of the cause and effect and how quickly you can feel better, you know, you can feel better in a few weeks or a month. And the promise of it is, is, is so much more obvious than the promise of internal change, which does take some time and uh, much more subtle. Uh, and it's not something you can pop in from the outside. Uh, that it it does it does present the challenge that that uh, very much uh, erodes potentially erodes a spiritual possibility for a person if uh, if uh, you can actually help yourself to the point that you feel good about yourself by making your body feel better when bodies. You know, bodies, uh, feel good and bodies feel bad. And, uh, earlier today, my body didn't feel so good. Now, with the help of you guys, I feel much better. But, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> bodies, bodies do, do that, you know, and yeah. attention on the body, attention on the body is relevant. But as a guy, uh, uh, Renee Dumal, who you may or may not be familiar with, mm-hmm. uh, said, uh, shoes are important. Uh, a person should take care of their shoes, 15 minutes a day is enough. And I. Uh, it may not be 15 minutes a day is enough to take care of the body, but I think we have maybe only 15 minutes a day left for anything else if we start to dedicate ourselves to that we're getting saved by eating vegetarian and we're eating organic and we're uh, taking supplements and those things uh all which do make us feel better and all which are credible. Same as, uh, the environment and the global warming and the, all those things. They're all credible and they're all relevant and they're all important. But the danger is that they substitute. They substitute for the internal change or they can substitute for the internal change. And I think that's where the challenge comes. Comes in a, in our time that uh, how can we how can we maintain the hunger for internal change if we ha- if there's so much promise that we can make our bodies better and we can make our external conditions better?
3: I got that. That's that's a really interesting uh, uh, comment. Thank you. <clears throat> um, I mean, there's two two things there. It seems to me one is the, this point about. Um, the way people try to fix themselves with diets or, or vitamins or whatever, um, fix their bodies, that is to say. And I, th- I think you make a really good point about how uh, how that can be, if if not quite a distraction, but something that something that takes the attention um, away from these other these other possibilities that we've been discussing. So that's that's one. One thing, and and I'm I'm just just a brief anecdote. You know, my my teacher. We, we you know we would when I was uh, sp- would spend time with him, and and there might be some really intense you know uh, consciousness expanding uh, episode, if you will. Um, oftentimes, we would end up going to some you know really seedy um, dining experience immediately afterwards the you know really uh not very healthy uh fast food or some you know cd diner whatever it happens to be uh and uh, and um it was a deliberate uh, policy that, if you will um that he would <coughs> that he would point to then the second thing that that you that that i um it, it sort of track some of my own thinking about um, for example, global warming, which is, you know, I I, I was um, I've been aware of as an issue for the for people um, to pay attention to for almost thirty years, and which means I was I was I was in on in on this stuff earlier than most people have been, right? Um, and and yet I'm also So, so aware of the level of ineffective behavior that gets um, promulgated supposedly in service of, of the environment and, and, you know, the biosphere of the earth, which makes people wrong for doing things that they were simply, that we were all doing unconsciously for, for all of our, all of our lives and if you only then broadcast negativity about that and try to make people feel bad well it's a natural reaction that they're going to push back against that it's not an effective way to respond it doesn't offer possibility it doesn't focus on possibilities it uh, focuses on on reducing people's possibilities as they as they understand it so it's a it's um so so that's some of the stuff that was coming up in response to your to your comments which I very much appreciated.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll add just a a, a small note which which is the the thing that ties together these uh uh factors that you were describing whether they're vitamins or uh, being a vegetarian or uh, um you know, being very having a very particular diet, which uh, you know, like not gluten free diet or whatever. My it, body is temple. Yeah. Well, it, it, the issue is, it, it's it's still there's still this. Uh, it, it kind of reifies this compulsion to find find the answer outside of myself. And I think you you like nailed it uh, in in terms of the that every time you do that, you're taking attention away from the reality that bringing attention within is the gateway to transformation. And, and so when people try to control their worlds, I mean, it becomes this, uh, uh, obsessive neurosis are you know, in where we live, uh, you, you may not have them up, uh, where you guys live, but where we live, we have people who are, you know, terrified of electromagnetic uh, frequencies and radiation and, uh, don't want smart meters and don't want antennas nearby or anything like that. And, it and, and, They exaggerate things to the point where they live, they live this world, you know, where they're trying to manage and micromanage the details of their exterior existence. And by the time you're done doing that, there's nothing left. There's just no attention left. Full time job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: I, 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 I think that's a a transformation that happens, uh, after I get to know people for a while. There's, uh, The understanding develops. Hello.
0: Yeah, we're here.
2: We're We're here. here. Yeah. Okay. An understanding develops that uh, that the the actual changes that we all seek, you know, a peaceful world and a harmonious world, uh, are possible, but with harmonious people and peaceful people and. so you know, like John Lennon said, whatever he said, it that's. Uh, I don't think it's ever been said better. How change has to happen. You got to change your head, and and whatever you change outside is is uh, may create a band aid. And I know it's uh, cliche to say that, but it still is the case.
1: Uh, I I think so. <clears throat> I mean, I, I do believe that the the energy the quality of energy that, uh, is produced with individuals engaged in real work on self has an effect. I see it. I mean, I, I work in the business world by, you know, by day and I don't, I don't, I don't make a secret about my interest in, uh, spiritual practice and, you know, always make sure that people are aware of that in case people have that interest, but at the same time, I don't push it or I don't, you know, because that's not my that's 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 not lawful, but I do believe that just being in that world, I notice that uh uh it has an effect to the extent that I can be centered in my practice and that and that's a you know a struggle in a uh business environment which is kind of built to uh uh push that kind of thing away but to, to the extent that I can be centered in that. I see that it uh, touches people in ways that they may not be conscious of. And I have to believe that communities that engage in this work transform the communities around them in ways that you know, create openings and create possibilities or make people more at ease so they don't feel like they have to hold on to destructive behavior, whether it's personal or environmental, in order to be right. So tell me what when you say you do business, what do you do? So I, I'm a, um, a manager, like a division engineering manager in a uh, uh, diversified industrial company, and the division that I work for deals with electromechanical automation. So it's like uh, motors and control, computer controls for motors and things like that.
2: Are you in, are you uh, involved in the business end or mostly the engineering end?
1: Well, it's a little, I'm I'm at a level of engineering where it's program management and uh, uh, get involved in a lot of more of the strategic side of things. And uh, so I started as an engineer, but uh, um, ended up basically getting more, operating more at the kind of program management level.
2: I, I think the language of business is is a language that is really required for a spiritual seeker because uh uh people may not like to acknowledge it but uh the the nature of Western culture is commerce
0: and it, <laughs> yeah
2: it not only commerce. Uh, of the buying and selling of of goods and services, but the buying and selling of reputation, buying and selling of of the moment of impressing, and buying and selling of 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 friends and relationships of all kinds, and I I I think it could be finer, but I think it could be it could be finer even with the context of the buying and the selling that it is, and I think business business which is competitive. By its nature, <clears throat> uh, uh, the river is a very clear picture of commerce and can be uh, allows us to understand since it is uh, clearer Clear, more clearly competitive, it can give us a, a better picture, uh, analogously, of the nature of life. Whereas, if we didn't have that that uh, concept, we would we might see our lives as as uh, as as not buying and selling, and not as uh, as commercial as it actually is. What, what do you think about that?
1: Oh, I I, I agree with that. I I, I think my what I appreciate about the business world that I think has analogies for me in, uh, in spiritual practice is that, uh, basically you can't fake success, uh, at least for very long because ultimately, uh, a business is like an organism and either it's, you know, it takes in resources and, uh, produces an output and then generates more resources or it doesn't. And that kind of, uh sort of primal reality i think is a important reminder for the nature of our lives and you know you you what i guess in the, in that sense i think i i guess i feel like yes that uh it does remind us that uh, our lives, just as uh, biological organisms, are ultimately transactional. We we take in substances, we put out substances, and we maintain a kind of a homeostasis for a period of time, just like a good business is able to maintain profitability for a period of time. And ultimately, uh, as our bodies go, so so do businesses. And and so it, it seems like it is a reflection of life on a different scale rather than something that's antagonistic to life. And all that said, I don't, you know, I, it doesn't mean that business is inherently destructive or it doesn't necessarily have to be. I think that there's ways in which that principle and those principles can be enacted and manifested that are constructive and beneficial for the greater community. I don't think we're quite there yet, but I think that, uh, that is a possibility.
2: Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with that. I, I think that, that, uh, that language, the language of business, along with the language of sports and the language of music and the language of, of, uh, hiking in nature, and that I've found it really productive to expose people that, uh, that cross paths with me to languages and uh, and well let's call it languages that they have not uh, been exposed to before you know the language of the country and the language of the city and and the language uh, uh, even of, of foreign cultures and the language of of uh, uh, not so much french spanish and english type languages but i think you know what i mean to have to have context because everything all our manifestations uh reflect something of of the human uh capacity experience depth and uh i find that the more that that they can be explored and understood and uh understood and communicated in the the better off we are. Let me ask you a question. How do you see this uh uh if you have had any exposure or uh or understanding of the cryptocurrency idea do you see this as reflecting anything about our uh, the financial or business or uh sociological uh, times
1: well, there's there's a couple of things I guess I see in with cryptocurrency, that that uh, on the on the one hand, uh, its its current manifestation has a a kind of a valence of uh, tulips in the Netherlands. You know, it's it's like a, a speculator's dream, and people project on it all sorts of unrealistic kinds of uh, expectations. That said. What I find interesting about it is that it's a currency model that is distributed among all the participants so that there isn't a central authority that is able to uh, control or to uh, uh, mandate the nature of the currency. Or manipulate it. Or manipulate it. And I think that overall, longer term, and I think this will be a very, a much longer term kind of prospect that the you know it facilitates a greater consciousness of people have you know in terms of their awareness of their the data about them and the uh, regaining control of their sort of uh, personal autonomy in a digital world and I think that ultimately it may presage a time in the distant future where the necessity of nation states for the proper commerce you know the uh, uh, the proper activities of commerce won't be as critical as they are today but again i think it's very early days for that sort of thing and most most of the buzz that i see on it seems to be more of a unrealistic projection than a um, uh a a reasoned understanding about what the possibility is
3: there, there's actually a a guy that we've had on our show uh, uh robin bloor um who uh, has written several books uh, interesting books in the fourth way um, arena who has who is uh, he's, crea- he's,
1: he's a chief st- strategy officer right. for a uh, company called algebraics which is creating a uh, a cryptocurrency ecosystem that's intended to transform how advertising happens where basically rather than basically your your uh, data being harvested by uh uh, Google and sold to advertisers in this ecosystem. You will get money every time you view an ad, and so it's trying to return control of your personal data and your digital identity to the individual. And if you choose to view an ad, then you get a bit. Then you get some. Uh, you know of the the tokens in this crypto system, and. That way, advertisers have very specific and very effective ways to target people because there's no better target for an ad than the person who actually consciously wants to view it so there are there are definitely interesting models that are evolving here, and they they do speak to to me to like greater autonomy and greater self awareness about our presentation of ourselves in this in the digital world today
2: so would that not require Uh, I I hear you saying uh, long-term, and uh, I certainly agree with that, and even long, long, long long-term. But no matter what the term is, wouldn't that require some uh, uh, transformation uh, in the human psyche that people don't don't want to be taken care of but want to take care of themselves?
1: Well, yeah. (laughs) I I think so. That's why I say long, long long-term there. I, I agree that uh uh there has to be a tra- uh, transformation, um because even as these technologies make the possibility of autonomy and self reliance uh, you know, possible, uh they don't they do nothing. they comp- they do nothing about the unconscious habit patterns that people Reifying themselves in in which they want to turn over that autonomy to uh, some uh, strong person somewhere or some system.
2: Yeah, we even had that in our uh, in our community uh, yesterday. We were talking whether talking about whether to do a getting together for Thanksgiving and calling attention to that, it, how customary it is, and people and making it open and families and all that, and uh, there was very little volunteerism of what should we actually do once we produce the list of all the alternatives to say, well, this is what I want to do. And I think that that's, uh, that would definitely be a challenge uh, uh, when it came to people wanting the control of their own whatever it is to actually uh, be willing to take the responsibility for that control and put the energy into that control.
1: I agree. I mean I I that that's why I don't I in particular that's probably where I'm coming from when I think the projections on things like cryptocurrency are just, you know, the same old story with a different object, you know, that something outside of ourselves is going to solve all of our problems and make everything all better. And I don't think that's the case. You know, I think that that's and and I think the corollary is that uh if one takes that responsibility for oneself and is a responsible uh sentient being then i don't know that we we don't then it doesn't really matter you don't need the cryptocurrency at that point because wh- wherever you find yourself uh uh it'll be fine well i yeah, think I, no, i'm sorry go, go ahead on.
3: Well, I was, no, you go ahead Okay, I was just going to say that uh I think that we see the same thing happening in this in the realm of AI, artificial intelligence right now. It's it's you know, it's suddenly become the the latest hot ticket to solving you know human problems and um we have a, a you know one of one of the uh people who've worked with Tai for many years is is incredibly uh, uh she, she's a very very intelligent uh, woman and her and her critique is that AI is not uh, transparent. The ways that AI come, makes its come to its you know offers conclusions about things are inherently not transparent, and not not uh, uh, it's not something you can investigate. And and her point is that this is this is an enormous mistake to put so much energy into. Um, into uh, finding ways to supposedly solve our problems into a methodology that has this limitation to it and um and i th- and, and uh, I think she has a point about that that is that is well worth considering, and yet there 's this pell mell rush that we see uh in the world around us to um, <coughs> you know people are worried about is China Pursuing AI, you know, better than America or you know this company or that company. It's 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 amazing how fast how fast the projections multiply and extend um, when people start um, having that having that um, exercised in them in their attention.
2: That would be a very very interesting uh, uh, juncture when uh, when this. Uh Artificial intelligence that you are referring to can in any way compete with how artificial our intelligence actually is now.
1: Exactly. <laughs> well, that's that's the th- that's what's so funny to me is like I, I'd, I'd I'd rather people be uh, more focused on uh, genuine intelligence rather than artificial intelligence, and that's. Uh, but again, you know, it's like a, it's a very um, uh, uh, buzzy kind of. Uh, Thing right now, and people you know uh, certainly certainly in the technology set, I think people gravitate to that like it's the next big thing that's going to uh, open up new markets and new new uh, uh opportunities for success, and yet
2: do you want to hear a joke a yeah.
1: good guru joke oh, yeah yeah absolutely
2: okay, uh, this guru is going to go out on a date, so he uh, might find some girl through uh you know, the internet and he uh he goes out on a date and <clears throat> and they're together sitting in a in a, a bar talking to each other and or in a coffee shop let's say talking to each other and uh the girl said, uh, So, tell me about myself
3: <laughs> I like it <laughs> that's a good one yes and just the sort of projection we were talking about <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> very nice
1: so um, I w- one of the questions I wanted to ask you that kind of touches back on a um, uh, when we were talking about the different languages and the use of different languages uh You've, you've uh, at the same time that there's fl- the need for fluidity in language and, uh, and the appreciation of differences, you've also talked about the importance of having a very clear work-related language like within a community so that you can, you might say, methodically progress to uh, deeper, more penetrating representations with that language. I'm just, I'm just curious, am I understanding that correctly? Is that, is that kind of a, a balance that you uh, find yourself uh, navigating in terms of the need for a specific language and the need for flexibility in language?
2: Absolutely, yes. I, I'm definitely a, a proponent of precise language, where precise language can be used, rec- recognizing that the language is still representative. And, uh, <clears throat> uh, if you forget that language is representative, uh, and that there is no such thing as a, a four or a six, but there are four cups of coffee or six pieces of wood, if you forget that you're referring to something and that language is not the something, uh, then <clears throat> the language becomes more a product, uh, a, a uh, uh, a vehicle for explaining if one understands that language can be used for explaining as in uh how <clears throat> how many or how much uh, or at what time will dinner be ready and a precise answer can, can be given to that question in language that uh, the inner la- the inner search requires a precise language which also accompanies the understanding that that language is representative so we have tools that we use and there are some verbal elements to those to some of those tools and some of those tools have no verbal elements uh, but the verbal the tools that have verbal elements uh, <clears throat> uh we practice uh, how to use those verbal elements precisely so that we can actually uh, uh, not misunderstand and take further our understanding and our exploration. But I have to repeat that it is so precarious to value language because <clears throat> once language becomes the thing in itself, and uh and that representative and that not uh pointing towards something then uh there is no way to stop it from going astray and if 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 a person studied the history of dogma one would see that uh the language becomes the reality rather than that the language refers to some reality so when i say so i do uh, concur completely that precise language is necessary with this codicil that I'm adding, but that the idea of know, knowing a lot of languages and being exposed to a lot of uh, life experiences, diverse life experiences, uh, is is uh, something that I am definitely a proponent of and I, I encourage.
1: So I saw in um I think in the, the final chapter of Just in Time, you mentioned that you'd uh, done some work and so, uh, with uh, Gödel's uh, incompleteness theorem and actually had a, a relationship with uh, Kurt Gödel. I'm curious how you find you know that notion of incompleteness uh, and in reflected in that work in terms of this whole question of the uh, futility of, let's say, having a perfectly exact language that, uh, at all times.
2: Yeah, I think, I think that, uh, uh, so, c- certainly, uh, mathematically, I couldn't possibly have kept up our, my conversations with Kurt, uh, if we maintained the language of mathematics. But, uh, what I found myself able to do, and he definitely encouraging, uh, was the interpretation of how that, uh, how not only that theory, but the, uh, but theories of irrational numbers and, 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 uh, uh quadratic equations and, uh, all, uh, theorems had their, uh, accompany explanation or exploration in life. And, uh, I became enamored of and, and relatively flexible, uh, in uh, making those transitions and and those explorations, and that was the, the essence of our relationship. In fact, uh, it got to the point that uh, I, when I first moved to Oregon, I wanted to uh, have some way of having some exposure to people, and he suggested, well, I'll give you a recommendation. You can teach mathematics at, uh, at the University of Oregon in Eugene. And of course, I had never done anything like that. But he said, "Teach the mathematics you understand." And I did that, and it was a fantastic exploration for a year for me.
1: Oh, that's interesting. That's a good. Uh, uh, actually, clarifies the the whole sense of being able to move between language sets. That uh, you know, there's a there's a kind of a feeling, a deeper feeling or a deeper truth that's reflected in some of these abstruse mathematical representations that are quite accessible, I mean, intuitively. It's, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I, for where I was coming from with that is like my my understanding of that kind of body of work is that no matter how complete you think your language is, there's always things that can be expressed that, you can't you can't arrive at sort of uh by virtue of uh, pr- uh proof or uh d- uh let's say deductive reasoning and it's it's always st- struck me as even at a mathematical level such a fundamental um c- uh, shout out for the uh power of creativity
2: right yes Thinking is basically a flawed system, <laughs> and if we we understand that it's a flawed system, we can use it for exploration to incredible degrees, but if we forget that it's a flawed system, it it's basically <clears throat> has deficiencies, which can be easily seen if one is uh, willing to see them, and bringing in uh, an emotional component, uh, intuitive component, uh, really... <clears throat> uh, Although is rarely valued to the extent that the uh, the thinking uh, is uh, is valued Uh, to add those components, really uh, still does not make a complete uh, science or dynamic, but still, but definitely deepens the uh, the process.
3: Yeah, that's. I mean, in some in some ways, that's uh, 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 an articulation that's it resembles what i was trying to suggest when i was talking about imagination earlier in the conversation because because if imagination is going to actually um result in in creative expression then it you 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 can't it can't just be a mental function it has to have these these other um components or elements and and so i i like i like how you how you um or just articulated that,
2: yeah, I think that that uh, without without all the components that the conclusions that people can derive from thinking and deducing and uh, quantifying uh, are consistently distorted, and the knowledge of history would prove that, and that 's why. History is, uh, is, uh, has fallen, the knowledge of history has fallen in its level of importance, uh, because history does prove the, uh, the, uh, limited, uh, capacity of thinking without the element of, of uh, finer feelings. And I'm, I'm thinking even of, of something that, uh, in, in talking about this something that presented itself presented itself as uh, a brilliant thought system and a brilliant analytical system which is the analysis of dreams which was put forth uh basically from a brilliant mental uh person mind d- deduction but uh was Developed in a way that it seemed like it actually could be quid pro quo, that you could explore, <clears throat> that you could examine dreams and come up with a deduction, which, in my opinion, is ridiculous, because on the face of it, uh, the dreams dreams are impressions that we're getting from all over the place and the fact that we would examine these things called our own dreams would be like examining uh the spaces between radio uh waves as they come through to us when we hear radio programs and we're trying to tune in a station we're getting five stations at once and uh it's very well. Maybe that the dreams that we're examining are uh, five other people's dreams, and that maybe maybe why we don't recognize half the people in our dreams because they're not even ours. So what would it mean to examine other people's <laughs> dreams? To get our own deduction. This might be a simplistic way of, uh, of exploring this question, but, but I think of the origination of the idea of that, uh, dreams are an expo- explorable, uh, uh, concept or, or activity and that it being reduced to actually, <clears throat> reduced intellectually to a cause and effect seems to be, uh, part of that distortion where uh the idea of that our intellect has the capacity to go into worlds where it just is not equipped to go into more than partially
3: hmm. well i think i think um uh, i think you're absolutely right and um um as you were speaking about uh, dreams uh, one of the things that was coming up for me is how how differently I've seen dreams um, addressed, and I've I've met a few Tibetan Buddhist practitioners who seem to uh, I, I I would like to know more about what they do with dreams, but it's certainly not a simplistic deductive analysis. And yet, um, they also seem to have have some way of integrating that into their practice. That's of, of interest to me. But but um, that 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 could be done. But I don't know. I I don't have any experience in how that would how you could do that.
2: Yeah, I find that I find that the the ephemeral nature of uh, and the passive nature of what takes what place when is actually asleep in bed is so much less defined and every all our manifestations <clears throat> and all the parts of us in a in a a good month of activity probably comes to the surface and can be witnessed and so I have not really I have tried to stay uh within the realm of what can actually be observed because i think once one studies what can be observed even on the surface of things is so uh... uh... uh, varied and so enormous that uh... to have to go into more subtle things where where analysis and uh... speculation is necessary is so much less scientific than than uh, studying our <clears throat> our actions in the moment.
1: Yeah, I I, I certainly agree with that, and it's I mean it's reflected in our own practice. We don't do a lot with dream work. I'm I'm not going to discount that it's a possibility, but there seems to be plenty plenty of material available just by being present to what's happening in this moment when I'm awake, and even that is uh, requires you know. A return and a uh deepening of that intention in order to be present to more and more content, so dreams are nice, but uh there's the, I'm not done yet with the uh, waking world right
2: i think since since we talked uh i I did a, an experiment and I wrote this book uh it's kind of a, a little bit of a travel book, a little bit of an adventure book, but it was it was an adventure for me to write it and uh it was certainly a lot of fun and a lot of it was based on actually experiences that I had. But I was able to uh bury a lot of the uh understandings that I had that I have and uh in in that and in that it was uh very different because the very first book I wrote was almost all ideas and wrapped around a little bit of a story of, of, of a poker player. And then, uh, I wrote, uh, but this other book that I wrote was, was very different. And so, uh, I, uh, it was an adventure that I have that I don't know if you, what your valuation or how much reading you guys do, but, but, uh, I've always had that valuation for, for uh, reading, uh, I think I mentioned it last time we talked, fairy tales and and stories where the the wisdom is buried. Mm. And uh, some people and the authors buried it with the hopes that a person here or there would, would uh, understand the subtlety and really get something other than the adventure of the story only. So uh, I, I got to experience that a lot more when I actually wrote a book of that kind, where I, the book can be taken as an adventure story, but I did bury a lot of what I understand in the in the dynamics of the character in some ca- characters, and in some cases the behaviors of the characters. So I'm curious to what you guys think about uh, that kind of writing, writing where the the understanding is buried rather than a book uh, where uh, where you get the how to or you get the you know the understanding put forth right. right on the surface
3: well i'll just ju- i 'll just say briefly that i think it's i think it's a great, I think it 's it's it's an accomplishment that very few people attempt or even have the context in their lives to imagine attempting so it always interests me number one and number two um, uh, writers who may not configure things like that to themselves but nevertheless um, recognize that that stories embody uh, sort of multi multi they can be multivalent or or have different levels of content and meaning are often one often writers that I'm that I'm drawn to who don't have that express intention but but third i want to know is this book published yet or um is it uh, about to be what what's its title
2: um, it's it's called the uh, Highway of Diamonds.
3: Okay. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah.
3: All right. Well, we'll have to get it, get yeah, that we, a copy for that. For we, that.
1: we will uh, look forward to reading it, and uh, hopefully, we can have a, another conversation in which we can uh, discuss that. Because I, I love that kind of literature, and as Rob said, it is uh, a rare individual who who can put that together. But for me, I, I appreciate it because it tends. I tend to connect it with it more emotionally. Than uh, you know where a how-to manual tends to be kind of uh, useful intellectually and useful to the extent that I might put the how-tos into practice, but uh, doesn't inspire in the same way.
2: Yeah, I'm my, my aspiration is to to uh, to come close to books like The Last Unicorn and uh, uh, some of the Narnian chronicles. Yeah and uh books that have have uh really really impressed me in their ability to convey depth and meaning and uh and <clears throat> so I'm going to try it again but uh it certainly was it was certainly fulfilling in 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 uh fulfilling and and deepened my understanding and my appreciation of of books of that kind because Even reading what I've written, I discovered that, wow, I didn't even realize I meant to say this, and and I reflected an understanding I had in this casual uh, uh, conversation between two people.
1: Oh, very good. Well, unfortunately, we are uh, at the end of our uh, time for this conversation. Uh, but I, I. But we can look forward to our next one. I hope. Yeah, but we really appreciate you taking the time before your travels to uh, uh, spend some time with us, and it's been uh, really, really, really enjoyable for us. I, I feel better. I, I like, like you earlier in the day. I was not feeling so well, and I, I feel pretty good na- right now.
2: Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah, we're <clears throat> we're heading out to North Carolina, and. Uh, there was a uh, a disaster that happened here which uh, has there a few months ago, which has certainly fallen out of the press because of the success of the disasters that seem to be happening but there's still a lot of need there, so we 're going to see if we can go and pitch in a little bit
1: Well, that's wonderful
3: well good for that, good for you guys and um, and We'll uh, look forward to reading this latest book that you've just told us about and to another conversation. Thanks so much.
2: Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week we featured a pre-recorded conversation with spiritual teacher J.J. Gold, author of Just in Time, Autobiographical Stories from an American Spiritual Master, Another Heart in His Hand, A Spiritual Anomaly, and Highway of Diamonds. J.J. J. Gold has been assisting people in their search for inner meaning for 35 years. Next week on The Mystical Positivist, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Hokai Diego Sobel. Hokai started practice and study of Buddhism in 1985. After 10 years of exploring Buddhist thought and practicing martial arts, while broadly learning from sources of Eastern and Western Mainstream and fringe, Hokai became a practitioner and eventually instructor in the Shingong esoteric tradition of Japanese Vajrayana under private tutelage of Ajari Jomyo Tanaka, while founding the Mandala Society of Croatia in 1999. Continuing to explore and cultivate his own Buddhist practice, Hokai maintains an ongoing conversation with a number of teachers and senior practitioners. Starting from 2012, focused on mentoring individuals to deepen their practice in the context of their lives, those who pray learn to meditate, and those who meditate learn to pray. Areas of special interest, mystical principles and esoteric practices in daily life, sacred apprenticeship, and deep semiotics. He is based in Rijeka, Croatia. Tune in for that show on Saturday, December 29th from 4 to 6 p.m. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County. To follow your bliss, first follow your dread. That's with the Taiyu Meditation Center staff, Wednesday at 7.30 p.m., December 26th, at Minnie Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Story has it that in the very bottom fissure of hell, the deepest recess glowing with unquenchable fires, a simple drain cover lies unnoticed find and remove the cover descend through the narrow drain and emerge into the highest most radiant realm of heaven if this metaphor resonates with something in you our practice group work that focuses upon follow your dread may resonate still more deeply no one can be divorced from or denied access to the mystical heart but to open and then live within the mystical heart of the world and ourselves has a cost We don't get there by denying, sweeping under the rug, or putting aside the aspects that we dislike of who we have been. The mystical heart receives the light and the dark without judgment. So in our group and individual practice, we seek to cultivate a heart-mind that holds all contents of consciousness simultaneously with discernment and without discrimination. Following your dread is an undertaking best accomplished in the company of fellow travelers and with guidance from others who have gone before. Join us Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. at Many Rivers in downtown Sebastopol to learn more about the realistic path to the mystical heart. And at Thursdays at Many Rivers in Sebastopol, there will not be an event this following week, so enjoy the holidays. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.